morning is from Romans chapter 15, and that's on page 949 in the Pew Bible. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The current issue of The Atlantic has an article on online dating, asking whether such services prevent long-term commitment. The article tells a story about Jacob, that's not his real name, He was from Portland, Oregon. He went to university on the East Coast, and then he, well, they weren't very specific, but I think he bummed around on the East Coast for a few years, moved back to Portland. Jacob found it hard to meet anyone, but after a while, he met a woman a little bit older than he was, moved in with her. They lived together for five years, but after five years, she moved out. Because he was lazy, aimless, and irresponsible with his money. Jacob was now in his early 30s, and he didn't know what to do. So he decided to sign up with an online dating service. He was amazed. Suddenly, he found it easy to get dates with beautiful and ambitious women. In fact, he is dating several now at the same time, hiding from others, from the others, what he's doing. I mean, Jacob is obviously not a Christian, but his choices are instructive for us, and they tell us something about our culture. He's not entering into a relationship to build up and encourage and strengthen another. He only thinks about himself. He has no idea at all what real love is. He has no idea about how fulfilling it is really to love another person. Indeed, at the end of the article, Jacob admits that the excitement of his new life is fading. 
we're not surprised as Christians, for we know that sin always has a sting in the tail. Even though there may be pleasure at the beginning, at the end, the pleasure begins to fade. If sin promises life, but it ends up killing us, sin at the end of the day brings death and boredom and frustration along the way. So the scriptures, this passage we just read, calls us to another way of living where we pour out our lives for others, where we give our lives away. And remarkably, we find that's the pathway to joy. In the passage before us, Paul continues to address the weak and the strong, well, especially the strong, but but also the text is more general, isn't it? What he says speaks to all of us. So I see three truths I want to lift out of this passage. First, we live in harmony with one another when we don't live to please ourselves. Now let's, let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. Let's hear those words. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul especially addresses strong Christians here. Their goal shouldn't be to satisfy their own desires, but to minister and to support the weak, he tells us. We should consider what builds up and edifies and strengthens another person. The goal of life as Christians is not to please ourselves. And of course, Christ stands as the great example for us, doesn't he? We see this in verse 3. Paul actually quotes Psalm 69. That'd be a good psalm to read this afternoon if you had time. It's a, it's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about David. It is quoted quite often in the New Testament in terms of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So, so David as king becomes a type who forecasts the coming of Jesus. And so this is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament about the life of Jesus. Here we have the words, the reproaches of those who reproached you. Of course, the you here is God. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So the experience of of David, David bore reproach for God's name, but supremely that's true of Jesus Christ. He bore the reproaches that fell on God. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, lived completely for the glory of God. The criticisms and hatred that people had for God, he, he took upon himself, didn't he? Jesus did not avoid siding with God when it brought pain into his own life. He continued to be faithful to the Lord even when people hated him and reviled him and turned against him. Of course, his devotion to God culminated in his going to the cross where he absorbed the, the wrath of God on our behalf and for our salvation. You know, the interesting thing is the hatred that people had for God was given by people who thought they were actually serving God. I, it, it wasn't fundamentally pagans, right? It was people who claimed to know God, 
who hated Jesus. So that, I think that's instructive for us, isn't it? It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't people who said we hate the things of God. It wasn't the atheists of the Greco-Roman world. No, it was the religious people who hated Jesus and turned against him. Jesus did not live for the opinions and the favor of men, but for the glory of God. He was willing to be murdered and criticized if it brought glory to God. And so so the lesson for us is in the same way, he says the strong, and all of us as Christians, should live to please others, to build them up in the Lord. Not to please others in the sense that they think more highly of us, but to please others in the sense that we build them up in the things of the Lord. So we should be asking, and this applies in so many areas, doesn't it? But how can I encourage, if I'm a wife or a husband, my spouse? In what ways, what concrete and specific ways can I show love so that they'll grow in the Lord? So I ask, is your home a place of love and joy? Is, is there is there a, a, a kind of radiance in your home because of the go- your gospel presence in it? As far as it depends on you, do you live at peace with other people? Or, or does everybody at home worry about displeasing you? Do others tiptoe around you nervously because they never know when you're going to be upset? Some people might like to make little things a big deal. They want everything done their way. But there's an excuse for that kind of thinking, isn't it? That we can all fall into. And it's this, I just want it done right. I just want it to be done right. That's all. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really not too particular. I'm just talking about things being done right. And you're just not doing it right. But that's just another way of saying, typically... I just want it done my way. That can often be just an excuse for selfishness. That can be an excuse for just wanting to please ourselves. We can defend our selfishness by claiming this is the right way. This is the way it should be done. Everything else is imperfect. Of course, we have to think of it the other way as well. Say you're a more relaxed person. And and you live with a more perfectionistic person person. Love means you show concern for them by trying to be more disciplined because a more relaxed person can fall into the danger right of being lazy and undisciplined and not carrying out what you ought to do. So so there's always some truth on both sides in these kind of issues, isn't there? Show love by considering the other. Show love by meeting the needs of the other. Don't confuse lack of discipline with love. In studying this passage and then reading the article from the Atlantic, I also thought of uh, Joshua Harris's book, Stop Dating the Church. Now, I have to admit, I've never read that book. (laughs) But I think it's a great title, you know, don't you? And how many Christians relate to the church the way Jacob does to girls? 
they're constantly moving from church to church to church. They're really dating the church. Most people in the United States measure a church entirely by whether it suits their desires. They're consumers shopping for the best product. Now, let, let me let me say something to qualify what I just said. Now, obviously, you should go to a church which you think is helpful for you spiritually. And, and clearly, it's important that you choose a church that teaches God's word and that it's faithful. And, and I'm not suggesting that there aren't times where it's right to shift churches. We need to use discretion and wisdom. There's, there's not just a simple answer to these questions. But it's very common for many to think almost exclusively about how the church is serving us. Many hop to another church when they think it will serve them better than the current one. Instead of viewing church as a commitment to fellow believers, it becomes often like an online dating service. We come to church to hear God's word and to encourage and strengthen others in the faith. That's why we take seriously here at Clifton membership, don't we? That we, we take seriously that we join together, we commit to one another, and to serving one another. We all fall short in this, don't we? We all have sins to confess. I say that as one of your pastors. I have sins to confess. All the elders would admit that, but that's our goal, isn't it? to strengthen and encourage one another as members. Paul says we should consider what is good for our neighbor. We should consider what builds up others, and that means being committed to one another. That's one of the reasons why we think it's, a, it's good, if possible. We know it's not possible for all of you, but we think it's good to come Wednesday night because you have another opportunity to build into others' lives, to, to meet with fellow believers, and to encourage and strengthen and just talk to one another. If you mainly think when you come to church how people aren't ministering to you, then you've fallen into the trap of being a taker instead of a giver. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone. I'm saying what the Bible's saying, pleasing yourself is not the pathway to joy. The unhappiest people are those who regularly reflect on how their own needs are being met. That's a recipe for unhappiness. The happiest people are those who focus on meeting the needs of others. We see in verse 7, And verse 5, that we're called to welcome one another. And verse 5, that we're to live in harmony with one another. We're to welcome one another because Christ has welcomed us. In the Old Testament, Israel is regularly reminded, welcome the resident alien because you know how it feels to be unwelcome. You You were aliens in Egypt. So welcome others. And that's what we're commanded to do here. Christians, welcome others because you have been loved and welcomed by God. You know what it is to be deeply, deeply loved. 
because you stand before God as clean and righteous, extend a gracious welcome to others. Remember what Christ has done for you. Be renewed in your love for Jesus Christ. I was really encouraged this week in a membership interview. I love doing membership interviews. Those are always so encouraging to hear what God has done in others' lives. And one of the, one of the things that encouraged me so much is when the couple we were meeting with said that they felt just so welcome at Clifton. From the, from the first time they came, that people reached out to them, said hello to them, invited them into their home. That, that was just really thrilling to me to hear. That's our goal, isn't it? To welcome others into our fellowship because it brings glory to God. Second, the second truth in this text, we glorify God very close to what we just talked about by praising him together. We see this in verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement, I'm going to return to that theme of encouragement and hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So so Paul prays that the church will have harmony and will worship God with such harmony. This isn't very hard to understand, is it? This isn't very complicated. It's pretty clear what he's talking about. A mark of a godly church is unity. In praising God, our passion as a church is to praise God together, and we do that in a unified way, without division. So unless I'm completely mistaken, I think we have this at Clifton. Is everything perfect here? I mean, of course not. We're, we're, we're a collection of sinners, aren't we? But I can honestly say, just in my limited experience, I have never ever been part of a church where there is such unity and harmony. I can say that in terms of the elders. At least that's my sense in the church as a whole. And I've been here a long time, too. You know, I started before we joined together in our church plant at Trinity Baptist. I'll never forget first coming to that church in 1998. And I thought right from the beginning, wow, this church is virtually perfect. Well, well, then I hung around a little bit, right? Then, then I got to know, oh, oh, everybody loves each other so much. And they did. But then I began to see, oh, yeah, there, yeah there's some tensions here. I mean, inevitably, right? It's, it's not perfect. There's no place that's, uh, that's perfect. It reminds me of uh, the little jingle. You, I've said it before, to live above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. <laughs> well, you don't, you don't see the tensions when you first join a church, but still, still God has given us an uncommon unity together, hasn't He? We, we have, I think, a body of believers that is mature and loving and forgiving. I, I think God has given us a gracious people. God has given us a people who are God and Christ-centered. I think we've largely been spared from gossip and negative talk in our body. That's a gift we don't take lightly. That, that's a gift that can easily be lost. So, so quickly a unity in a church, I've seen this happen too, can be shattered 
You, you don't see it coming. It's, it's a gift of God, ultimately. So let's pray that that unity we have will continue to flourish. Let's not take it for granted. It is a great, great gift. Jesus says in John 17, unbelievers will know we're believers by our love for one another. And he says that in John 13 as well, by our unity and our love. So we ought to beware of a divisive and contentious spirit. Remember with one another to keep short accounts. If you're offended with someone, you know, go talk to them and and work it out with that person. Because I think that's where division grows, a, a spirit of of unhappiness with another person begins to sprout and we don't say anything. We ought to work those things out. Paul sees this harmony worked out in the history of salvation, in the worship of Jews and Gentiles together in the body. I think we see this especially starting in verse 8. Paul says, For I tell you, that Christ has become a servant, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So, so the circumcised here refer to the Jewish people. And this has been a big issue in Romans, if, if you think about it. I know you haven't been here necessarily for the whole series, but right from the beginning, we have this emphasis on the, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we saw in Romans 9 through 11 a long discussion about the, the a future salvation for Israel. So, so he says here, Christ became a servant to fulfill the promises he made at the beginning to the Jewish people, which culminates, I think, finally in the history of salvation, in the future salvation of ethnic Israel. So all Israel will be saved. So the promises given to the Jewish people in the Old Testament are not withdrawn. They will still be fulfilled. He emphasizes that right here, doesn't he, in verse 8. God's truthfulness is confirmed. His promises truly come to pass to the Jews. But that's not all. Verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy... So the promise isn't just for the Jews. In the Old Testament, we read from the beginning that all nations would be blessed in Abraham so that the Jews and the Gentiles would find blessing. The Gentiles would also give thanks to God for his saving mercy and his saving love. And how is that expressed? It's expressed in a unified body, you see? As they praise God together, and Paul points that out for us in the middle of verse 9, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That is with the Jewish people, clearly. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. So the unity of Jews and Gentiles is expressed in worship together as they praise God for his saving love. So how can a church have harmony and be united? By crafting a good vision statement? By ministering in the community together? By working together in the church? 
All those things are good things, aren't they? But they're not the most important marker of unity. Unity begins with the truth of the gospel, doesn't it? With the reception by both, you see it in the text, the reception by both Jews and Gentiles of God's saving mercy. They've experienced salvation. But that salvation is dependent upon the gospel that is proclaimed. So our unity comes from our new life in the Spirit. We're united as Christians because if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. So our unity comes from our life in Christ. Our unity comes from a vision of God in Jesus Christ. And our unity is expressed in our worship. As we worship God in spirit and truth, we express that unity both to God and to one another. So our unity isn't fundamentally horizontal, is it? But it's first vertical. We have unity because we have peace with God. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, maintain the unity of the Spirit. Not don't create it, maintain it. So unity is something we don't create. It is something that God gives to us. We're united at Clifton in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we hold to. That's what we proclaim. That's what we prize. We link hands together to spread the worship of God. That's what I'm going to preach on next week to all peoples. That brings me to the last truth in this passage. We glorify God when we put our hope in Him. We glorify God when we hope in Him. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days, clearly he's talking about the Old Testament here, isn't he? But I think it's true of the whole Bible. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I think this is such a fascinating verse. And it is so relevant to our lives. There are so many in our culture who are discouraged and depressed and down and downcast. And even Christians, as Christians, we can fight against depression and discouragement. But we see from this verse... God wants us to have hope. If you have hope for the future, you can make it through anything. How do we get it then? Where does hope come from? Verse 4 tells us it comes through endurance. Isn't that the first thing he tells us? Hope comes through endurance. That makes sense, doesn't it? You go through a hard time, a difficulty in your life, a trial, you make it, you have hope for the next time, right? You have hope for the next time. God gave me the grace to make it through this. I didn't think I could. That builds hope for the next trial that comes along. In the midst of the trial, you may not have the hope all the time. But remember, if you're in the midst of it right now, God is bringing that trial to build hope into your life. Not to destroy you, but to strengthen you and to give you hope. 
So hang on if you're going through a hard time. Recognize that God is wanting to build hope into your life and giving you strength to endure the next difficulty that is coming your way. Second, notice that we also get hope from the encouragement or the consolation that comes from the Scriptures. So when you read the Bible, it is right to expect that when you read the Bible, you will be hopeful. The Bible is intended to give you hope for the future. If you aren't getting hope and you're, as you're reading the Bible, you know this. If you're reading the Bible and you're, you're not getting hope, you're not reading it rightly. Because it's there. Now, now I hope that's encouraging. If you're not getting hope, because the, because I'm saying to you, there's hope that you will get hope, you see? There's hope that you'll read the Bible and, and receive the hope that is there. So read the Bible with anticipation. Keep digging. Keep reading. Keep praying. Keep meditating on the scriptures. Ask God to show you the truths in the scripture that give you hope for the future. If you aren't reading the Bible regularly, you're missing out on the hope God wants to give you. God uses means to build hope in our lives. Hope isn't given to us in a, in a vacuum. God uses means, doesn't he? I am sure many of you, I hope most of you, can testify how your hope has been built up again and again and again by reading the scriptures. It isn't as if God is displeased or angry with us if we miss a day reading Scripture. It it isn't a legalistic requirement that we must read our Bibles every day. Instead, it is our food. It is our ammunition. The Scriptures are the means by which we are given hope and strength every day. We also see in verse 12... That our hope is Christ-centered. Here Paul quotes the prophecy from Isaiah. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So Jesus is the root of Jesse. Jesus fulfills the promise given to David that there would be a son of David who would sit on the throne. He has risen from the dead. He rules over the world now. A day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So we learn from this text that our hope isn't in ourselves. Our hope isn't in our intellect. Our hope isn't in our work ethic. Our hope isn't in our work. Our hope isn't in our own righteousness. If you're an unbeliever here today, our hope is in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What He accomplished for us on the cross. Our hope isn't in what we've accomplished in our own strength. Are you trusting Christ Jesus to deliver you 
from God's wrath on the final day? Are you trusting in what you would do? God wants you to put your hope in Jesus the Messiah. Finally, we see in verse 13 that God wants us to abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He is the God of hope. Hope comes from God himself. Hope is a gift of God. But not only that, God wants us to abound in hope. Not just to hope, but to abound in hope. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is a miracle, isn't it? If we have such hope, that is not something we create. That is something that God works in us. Hope and trust, according to this text, are very closely related. When God fills us with all joy and peace in believing, then we abound in hope. So how do we get hope? It's when we have joy and peace in believing. But where does belief come from? How do do we have such faith so that we can abound in hope? Where does such faith come from? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing God's word. Faith comes from fuel, in other words, from the ammunition of God's word. So God's word begets faith in us so that we believe and so that we have joy. And therefore, we can abound in hope. I close with this. We won't believe if we don't see the object of our faith. We won't believe if we don't have a vision of God because the Scriptures direct us to Him. The Scriptures direct us to God, to see God. And when we see a vision of God, then we're full of hope. When we see who God is, He begets hope and strength in us. So we close by saying, as Moses did, Lord, show me your glory. Or as the Greeks said to Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus. Let's pray.